0: Welcome to Highland Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. We are in session 25 of our look at the book of Revelation, and this is the second of two intense prophetic images that uh, that saint john is being given after having eaten a little book Uh, so in effect we're seeing his indigestion but before we go any further let's do what we should always do when we consult the word of god and that's uh, bow our hearts in prayer heavenly father we thank you again for the opportunity to come together we thank you for the instruction of your word, and we thank you to, for the great pains that you and uh, Lord, those that you picked to pin it went through so that we might have this precious gift. Lord, the, the glimpse into the future, may it be instructive, and that may it also compel us to the work that is ahead, inspiring us to be sources of mercy and comfort, compassion, and challenge in the society and the neighborhood in which we We are stationed here as ministers of your grace. So be with us now. Open our hearts, hands, and minds to your word as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. For it's in the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So just by way of quick review, we are in between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath. We're actually in the intermission period. And... you'll see those two clear stars there because the, the seventh trumpet has sounded but the impact of it has yet to be seen. So we're in this strange space where we're waiting to hear or waiting to see what the trumpet brings. In that interperiod between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven, uh, John was given a small scroll We talked about the past couple of sessions and that scroll, he was told by an angel to, of all things, eat. Now this is not uncommon in Scripture. This is actually the third time that we hear reference to such a thing, and we find it uh, mentioned as a commission to prophecy. Basically, the prophet is given the Word of God to be made part of themselves. The Word becomes part of the prophet, Uh, The hearing of the word is sweet, but in this one instance, out of the three mentioned, John is the only one to say that upon the assimilation process, when he's digesting it, in other words, it becomes what in the stomach? Very bitter. So, this is also, uh, there is also an echo through each and every time that this happens in Scripture. And that is that the people who receive the message are resentful of having received the message. And I'll again assert the fact that this is the only book of the Bible that makes it a special point to say, read me. There is a blessing in chapter one promised by God to the readers and the hearers of this book. And yet, getting along with that prophetic echo, in the church, it is the most mistaught, maligned misunderstood, or just flat out not taught book in the entire Bible, which is a real shame for several reasons. But those were previous sermons, so let's continue. So he, he has digested the book, and from almost the instant that he has eaten it, that we re- read about him having taken it into himself, there are two big prophetic visions. Last week we talked about the coming of the child Uh, from the woman in the sky, the great sign that was revealed to him. Now, this is one of two signs, again, that we're going to see. So this isn't John saying that he is actually experiencing the birth of Christ firsthand. What he is seeing by the words, a great sign, is a picture painted by God to reveal a biblical truth. We call them parables. Christ used them often when he taught an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So again, this is God painting a picture for us to reveal in the first episode the, uh, the fullness of redemptive history through his eyes. And in the second episode, we'll be seeing the tragedy of the tribulation period. So the persons mentioned in the first side were, of course, the woman that we identified as the people of Israel. Why? Because of the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Jacob himself, in the book of Genesis, identifies this image for us. He actually unpacks that prophecy. We also see the child, which uh, we can infer, quite frankly, as being Christ. Now, there are two different, and I talked about this, two different arguments as to is it Christ the individual, Jesus of Nazareth, or is it Christ is in the body of Christ, is in the capital C church, the redeemed, being ascended into heaven. There is, of course, the red dragon, who is Satan. There are many uh, high school mascots out there that might want to think about their particular choice, but let's move on. The red dragon with many heads is the enemy, Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Michael appears, the archangel, the captain of the Lord's host. And of course, there is a faithful remnant, the persecuted, uh, that are also presented for us. Now, last time in my notes, I accidentally confused my crowns. And I want to uh, apologize for that and instruct on that. When we were talking about the red dragon and the symbolism of his appearance, again, he had seven heads with seven crowns, and on the screen I had put the Greek word Stephanos, which is a victor's crown. Um, There are two Greek words for crown that appear in the Bible. The first is Stephanos. It is the laurel crown that you see if you see like the ancient Olympics being depicted. The Stephanos is the kingly, excuse me, the diadem. There I did it again. A diadem, on the other hand, is the kingly crown. It is a ruling crown. It is the circlet that goes around someone's head to identify them as an overlord, as a person of royal authority. Now, of course, we talked about ten horns. Horns in Hebrew culture represent power and strength, power and authority. In fact, the Hebrew letter Aleph uh, comes about from having a, an ox with two horns showing. That's where the original letter comes from. It depicts the strength of a house. So when you have an ah plus a beh, which is a house, plus an ah, which is the head of the house, so you have the head of a house with strength, aba A, that is the word in Hebrew, aba, which means Father, what's unique about the Hebrew language is the pictographs of the pre-Babylonian language plus the individual letters themselves, they have a symbolic meaning, they have a numerical value, and when they're spelled out, a lot of linguists have now taken a look at teaching Hebrew by teaching the the meaning of the letters as you construct them and the words being kind of defined by the meaning of the letters. Does that make sense? Each letter has a symbolic um, definition behind it that goes into the, le- the, the word that it's part of. So anyway, again, he has 10 horns. Uh, 10 in biblical terms is a combination of 4 plus 6. 4 being a number for nature or the earth, 6 being a prophetic number identifying mankind or the fallen, the imperfect, the unholy. So when you get six plus four, what you're getting is a prophetic image of a fallen creation, an imperfect creation. So for a being to have a complete number of crowns with this obscure, strange number of horns means that this being, at least in the prophetic image that is being set up for us, that this being claims to be complete rule and authority and having all power over a fallen creation, who is supposedly the prince of the age, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, as defined in the Bible. Satan, this is that image in a, uh, an illustrative form. Now, having put my correction from last session on screen, I will remind you of this disclaimer that I put at the beginning of each and every one of my Bible studies, Acts 17, 11, where Paul is preaching to the Jews in Berea, converting them to Christianity, and he writes that the people in Berea were more noble in character than those that he previously met in Thessalonica, since they received the word of God with eagerness and also examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they didn't take the person behind the pulpit as gospel. They did their own Bible study. They did their own homework. And it strengthened their faith. So, in spite of the fallen, fallible, and uh, very accident-prone person that's in the head of, uh, right in front of you, I would ask you take this has a disclaimer at face value, do your own homework, and I guarantee you that you will be blessed for your efforts, especially when it comes to a study of the word of God. So again, we are in chapter 13. Uh, excuse me, chapter 13. Glibly, I have ta- uh, called it a trinity of evil, and I'll explain why as we get into it. There are three core characters in this chapter. We've already met one of them, the dragon. Let's learn about the other two. Verse 1, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had, ten, it had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its, feast were, its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. I want you to notice this. Now, if the dragon is Satan himself, and if, and if Satan is claiming all power, authority, and dominion over the world, the natural world at this point in time, he is effectively adopting in this person a regent, Someone basically to rule under his own authority. He is lending this person his power. That's significant for any number of reasons. We'll talk about that in just a second. I want you to have that in mind as we continue reading. One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? This beast was given the mouth, a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's that period of time again. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling and those who dwell in heaven. So he's laying down, he's basically declaring war, the citizens of earth against the citizens of heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name is not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. And John himself pins these words that we've seen associated with Christ. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Let him hear. Now that should instantly catch our attention. It should catch our attention because we know from the times that Jesus himself spoke it, that whenever he wanted to make sure that people were paying attention, this was it. And now in the book that we normally, this is the part of the book that Christians often ignore. Because we think, you know, if we're already raptured in heaven, who cares? Well, here John is actually saying, no, pay attention right now. This is important. If anyone has ears to hear let him listen. So first off, the name of the or the word in Greek for beast is Theon. It means a dangerous animal, a venomous wild beast. In other words, it's the same type of, of beast that we have seen previously. Um, there is another word that means beast, Translation, living creature, earlier in the book of Revelation. Zoe, that is a, is a really bad mistranslation in the King James Version. So what we're talking about here is not just a living being. What we're talking about here is indeed a, a living creature with deadly intent. There's also a prophetic echo in the fact that he's coming out of the sea. Because previously in the book of uh, the Old Testament history, we see of a sea people called the Philistines who were usurping invaders that came out of the water. In fact, their, um, their escapades throughout the Mediterranean region made them known in some other cultures, particularly in Egypt, as the sea peoples. You've probably heard about that in the news and on the History Channel and so forth. But anyway, so there is this identification of somebody coming out of the water with malice in their hearts to attempt to rule over the people of God, to claim the land of promise for themselves. We're also in the book of Daniel, 7th chapter, verses 3 through 8, gives us an echo of four different beasts that are all described now as as one beast. You see four different um, animals for four different kingdoms with all these different associations. And now we have one beast that is a combination of all those things. uh, Feet like a bear, head like a lion, all these things that tell us something about this creature and, and its mission, if you will. The fact that it also comes to us from Daniel means that it's bringing, over, bringing other nations into subjugation, just as those other creatures did. It's here to wage war against the people of God. Now, we know that the creature itself blasphemes not only the name of God, but also the saints, and I find that interesting. we'll also hear that uh, he's abandoning the seasons and the law, meaning even the, the, uh, during his rule, the things that we take for granted with the liturgical calendar, with the, uh, the celebration of the things that remind us of God. In the Jewish mindset, their liturgy, their, um, someone once said that the Jewish catechism is their calendar. Because what they believe is ground into all the festivals, all of the, um, the holidays, even the celebration of the coming of the new moon, all of that teaches the families of God about God. So here we're seeing that when the sea beast, the beast out of the ocean, when he comes to power, not only does he come to power, but he he abandons everything that makes the people of God the people of God. The celebrations, the law, all of that are thrown out of the window. So, Israel becomes oppressed for a period of three and a half years. And God, it is promised, will condemn and will judge over this creature. Now, Again, we told, uh, we mentioned this description that the beast from the sea has ten horns, which are symbolic of power over creation, seven heads, meaning that he has rulership, ten crowns, meaning that he claims authority, and he has blasphemous names written on his head. Now, that all seems pretty bizarre to our ears, but again, this is a prophetic image that is being set up. And one of the ideas behind it is that In every nation, there is somebody whispering in the ears of people of influence trying to get that nation to move away from the things of God. Is that not something that we see at work? So effectively, what we're talking about here is somebody that was handpicked by the enemy. More than likely, somebody that God himself... uh, when the rapture takes place, that's the indicator to the enemy that I need to do something fast. Things are going to happen quickly. Chances are good that the enemy has had somebody picked out to fulfill this role ever since Christ ascended back to the Father. That with each succeeding generation, he didn't know when things were going to ramp up, so he didn't know who he should choose to empower. When it calls, uh, when the sea beast comes up and we talk about Antichrist, I'm not, I don't think we're talking about a literal biological child of the enemy. I think we're talking about somebody that he chooses, that he empowers, and that he places in this type of position. Because, again, the the devil is not all-powerful. The devil is not all-knowing. The devil is not omniscient, omnipresent. He is very fixed. So all he can do is react. In the same way, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and all-powerful. And nothing that he does is a knee-jerk reaction. When Adam and Eve experienced the fall in the Garden of Eden, God knew what was about to happen. The coming of Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation, the ability to come to him to accept a free pardon of sin... All that had been put in place, planned, before the earth itself was created. We have a really bad habit in our culture of thinking that, uh, that God and that Satan are like the yin and yang, that they're two equal but opposing forces. And that's anything but the truth. So anyway, end of that sermon. Let's continue. Now, the the new beast that we just read about has a bunch of similarities to the dragon. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. However, there are significant differences in his physical appearance. The Bible tells us that he has the body of a leopard, that he has feet like a bear, that he has the mouth of a lion. Now, prophetically, as, as prophets pin down different characteristics, what they were seeing in their imagery, tells you something about the creature. If it has something akin to a leopard, that means that this person is fast and powerful in terms of speed. If they have anything that resembles a bear, that is emblematic of strength. When you come up against a bear, the one thing you really don't want to do is wrestle it. And he has a mouth of a lion, which means danger of death. We are told that the enemy prowls around like a lion, seeking for whom it may devour. That image is of impending doom. We also hear that he has a fatal wound. And that's actually, the Antichrist has a physical description of himself provided for us of all places in the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 11. Woe to the, in in this, I'm going to talk about that word for just a second. Worthless, verse seventeen of chapter eleven in the book of Zechariah. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. That word translated as worthless actually means idle. We'll talk about that for a second. Not idle as in I'm not doing any work today. Idle as in a figure, a statue, an ungod god. Woe to the idle shepherd who deserts the flock. In fact, that's the way it's translated in the King James Version, so I will brag on it in this one instance. May a sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm wither away and his right eye go completely blind. We just read that the dragon did have those kinds of features, that it did have a wound on its head that would have been fatal, that should have been fatal, but that wasn't. So it carries the scar with him. Now the word for idle, or the word for worthless here, elil. It's a Hebrew word that does mean good for nothing. By analogy, vain, vanity, specifically an idol. Uh, the word, if you want to break it apart, literally means worthless God or powerless God. El for Lord, ill meaning no value. So fatal wound. The damage that he had apparently been uh, sustained should have been lethal, but had been healed, possibly resurrected. Now, I want you to remember and keep this on guard, underline this in your notes when we get to the bottom of the chapter, that the places that took damage were the right eye and the arm. Apparently, when he is healed or seemingly resurrected, All of a sudden, the people around the world start to worship Him. And they start to worship the dragon because of Him. Does that sound familiar? A resurrection causes the attention of people to worship. This is a dark reflection of Jesus. Hence, we use the term anti-Christ or in the place of Christ, not just against but that that the enemy is trying to set himself up as God and this person as the Christ figure. And that's not all. The Trinitarian model is powerful. Marriages are Trinities. A husband, a wife, and God. It is a sacred covenant that spans three directions. We have a bad habit of thinking that it's only a husband and a wife. But no, it's a sacred act of covenant to be in a marital relationship. It has to be a husband, a wife, and God, all three, in union. That's important. And it's such a powerful mode that the enemy himself adopts it. The dragon grants his authority or regency of the earth to this sea beast or to the antichrist. And the period that he is allowed to run run ramshot over the world, and especially the people that are still faithful living on the planet are three and a half years. Same span of time that we talked about earlier, same span of time that comes to us from the book of Daniel. He slanders both God and his faithful again setting that difference between the citizens of this world in the citizens of heaven. It's a fallen form of patriotism. It's a fallen form of patriotism because the people of this age, at the time in which we're talking about right now, consider their nation, their home, their motherland, if you want to think about it this way, or fatherland, as we'll talk about it later, they consider it the planet itself. So we are literally seeing a war between the natural and the supernatural of heaven and earth. So the beast declares war. He conducts a successful oppression. Again, that's reflected in the book of Daniel, chapter seven. And it's the, the church is already out of here. So we've got to be talking about the tribulation saints. At least that's my interpretation. I'll leave that open to you all. But as Daniel writes in reference to this passage, as I was watching this horn, again, that word horn refers to a person in power, a person of authority. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until, that's the limit. The tribulation period in Daniel only lasts for three and a half years. And then there's that glorious word until, the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? Jesus himself, God. Until the Ancient of the Days arrived and judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For he had come and the holy ones took possession Of the kingdom. So, this is your role. And we're going to see that a little bit further uh, later on in the book of Revelation. But guess what? Jesus Christ doesn't come alone when he comes back, the church victorious comes with him. So, anyway, before that takes place, though, while the enemy has his three and a half year time, The sea beast, the person that it's describing, unifies the world under a single government and, as we're going to hear about, a single economic standard. All of the unsaved come to worship him. Again, dark reflection of Christ. You see the resurrection. The resurrection points to, in this case, a false god. A reverse, and he's given the power to call down fire. We'll actually talk about that in just a little bit. This guy actually has made several appearances in the Old Testament. He was referred to by the pen of Moses as the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter three, the little horn that grows in the book of Daniel, the prince that shall come, and the willful king, all three in Daniel, the idle shepherd as we just read in Zechariah. This is the most documented time that we're studying in the book of Revelation that is mentioned in the Bible. All the prophets, most of them anyway, uh, a lot of hints here and there from Daniel, Zechariah, all of it points to this three and a half year period. In the New Testament, he's called by the voice of Jesus himself, the one who will come in his own name in John chapter five. The man of sin by Paul in 2 Thessalonians, the man doomed to destruction, the lawless one, the Antichrist by John, and here we see him as the the sea beast. We can infer these things about him. He's intelligent. He has the gift of persuasion. He is a real smart political thinker and maneuverer. He would have to be if he somehow manages to pull a a world like this under one, one kingdom. That'd be insane. He is a very good financial planner, He's a military strategist, he might not be a commander, just as the same way that our president is not an on-the-ground military commander, but he's a commander-in-chief, he's the strategic mind behind the generals. He's an administrator, a superb one at that. He is knowledgeable in terms of virtually all religions because he even unifies them. He is mortally wounded, And yet, he survived in appearance like a resurrection. Again, we talked about antichrist, meaning in the place of Christ or pseudo Christ. And here is the adoption of the rule of three, if you will the dragon, meaning the devil himself, the sea beast, which is the coming political leader, and number three, the person we're going to read about now, the land beast a false prophet that's also alluded to in John's gospel. So getting back to the Bible itself, in verse 10 of chapter 13, if anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Basically what John is telling us in this one verse is that what God has planned is going to be part of His plan. Now as things unfold, we might not understand it. The people undergoing it are not going to understand it. But I want you to think back to the stories of the early church. Stories where people during Roman times, because they wouldn't offer a five-cent pinch of incense to an altar with a a statue of Caesar Augustus on it, they would be burned at the stake themselves. What John is basically saying is that by your endurance, God's plan will come to fruition. We hear about all these martyrs for the faith. Polycarp comes to mind, someone who was in Asia Minor, who again, Five cents would have saved his life. But when the Roman centurions finally horned him and the consul asked him, save your own life. Just throw one pinch into the fire. That's all you have to do. And his response from Fox's book of martyrs, I think that it is, was, 80 and 3 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme the Lord who loved me so? Bring forth the flame. That type of faith is what John's calling for here. You know what the Bible calls a Christian like that? Normal! (laughs) Sorry, but that's the truth. This is the conviction that we're all supposed to harbor in our hearts. That we are so certain of the love of God for us that no matter what happens to us in this world, what we have waiting for us beyond this world is far greater. Out of this world. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. And he continues, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and it had two horns like a lamb. Note that description. But it spoke like a dragon. A lamb that speaks like the dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So there's the, here's the tie-in back to the prophets. So this, this anti-prophet is lifting up the antichrist period uh, person who is in turn lifting up the anti-God person, meaning the devil. So there's, there's a satanic trinity at play here. Satan assuming the role of the father, the sea beast assuming the role of the son, and if you will, the land beast assuming the role of, yeah, he who points to Christ in us today. It's a dark reflection of God's plan. It's a dark reflection, a reversal of God's plan. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast. Again, we're talking about setting up of the abomination of desolations in the holy place. So not only is he going to claim to be God, he's going to put an idol of himself in the temple of God when it's rebuilt. The abomination of desolation. It was permitted to give breath to this image, so this is an idol that's going to be able to talk as if it were a living God, so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The beast from the ground. Two horns, meaning that it's lesser in glory, but in the fact that it it resembles a lamb, it resembles Christ. It's a dark reflection of the lamb that was slain. A wolf in sheep's clothing, if you will. He acts as the religious representative of the sea beast, causing all the other denominations and religions on earth to now give up their own tradition to worship this guy. He's empowered to deceive through miracles. In in kind of a dark version of Elijah, he can also call down fire from the sky. I won't say heaven there because it's not fire from God, but from the sky at any rate. So he's acting as a false prophet and a false priest. He uh, places, he's the person that places the abomination of desolation in the temple. Uh, He raises an idol of the sea beast. It can speak. I'm still waiting to figure that one out. I'm thinking robot, but with all the supernatural stuff going on right now, who knows? This is also a reflection of what happened to the Christian church in the first and second centuries. Caesar worship that we talked about previously. And we're going to see that through his ministrations, he's going to force a mark on the places, uh, on regular people in the same places that we just read were damaged on the sea beast, on the Antichrist. The places of his forehead and his right. So, this, when we talk about the mark of the beast, we're not talking about a covert thing. We're talking about a very overt thing. We're not talking about a microchip put in someone's hand or a new kind of transfusion or a, a shot that's unlabeled or a social security computer. We're talking about something that claims that you take voluntarily at first to claim allegiance against God to his enemy. Are you with me so far? We're going to see that play out in just a second. There we go, Revelation 13, back to verse 6. This particular beast makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. The leader that we follow, his scarred, will put something on ourselves in the same place as those scars. Make us look like him. so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person, it is the number, a trinity of the fallen. The number six is a prophetic value, a prophetic symbol that means fallen or unholy. Having three of them in the same place means that there is a group of three unholy. Three that stand against God. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about this as we're going to talk about. John writes, let the person who has insight calculate, meaning for those living at the time, who are discerning. Keep this in mind. He calls it the number of his, his name. Also the number of man, the number that is brand, uh, a brand of servitude against God, a slave mark in a way, but one that is accepted willingly. It's a mark of citizenship of the earth. It's, you might as well be putting a spostica on yourself. In fact, I believe that that was a dress rehearsal for this very thing. Taking the mark, though, results in condemnation. Those who take the mark, it's game over. This does not, this person is given up. Effectively, it's equated to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear about that in later chapters. Anyway, speculation abounds. The name of the leader may have a numeric significance, and that letters can translate into numbers this happens in at least three languages that we know of coincidentally those languages are greek latin and hebrew where the letters themselves equal out to a number so it could be that if you ca- that whoever it is whatever his name happens to be those letters will spell out or, or look like this number that's again that's one speculation Uh, It could be that it has to be a calculated value. The three numbers multiplied by each other, the three numbers added together. But again, this is an overt symbol. It's a a sign of allegiance. Every time that something new comes out of Washington, it seems like that some preacher out there claims that it's the mark of the beast. They're going to pick microchips in us. They're going to give us a vaccine with a hidden chemical composition in it. They're going to create the social security number, and the computer that's going to store it all is named the beast. Well, that's that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a mark of identification. At first it's taken willingly, like adopting a party insignia. Here's a story for you back from the 1930s. In a fit of desperation over an economic crisis of biblical proportion, an outspoken individual comes to power with an intensely uh, pro-country agenda. Someone who is so patriotic in the eyes of his nation that uh, He should have gone to jail, but instead he gets imprisoned in what effectively turns out to be a luxury apartment. He is a gifted orator. In the beginning, he seems to be a military genius. And he adopts a mark. And he is sent, at first, as a spy to a political gathering, to a party gathering, but he becomes enamored by these folks and by their message. There is a people out there who are the reason for all of our problems. There is an entire race of human beings that if we didn't have, our nation would rise up again and take its place among the great powers of the earth. If you're with me, this sign the one that I wear on my arm, the one in the lapel pin, that says that you're with me. So it goes from being the sign of a person to the sign of this political movement. And it generates popularity like crazy. It takes a little while at first. Some manipulation here and there, a few bribes, a couple of accidental deaths. But pretty soon, these people were so desperate for bread that they listen to anything and anyone. Perfect recipe for disaster. So what starts out as an emblem of a person and then the emblem of a party becomes the emblem of a nation. And as they rise to power, it's not the people who have it that are the problem, it's the people that don't have it that become the problem. To the point that if I have somebody that lives across the street from me and I don't like the way that they're not mowing their lawn every day, And Mr. Bruckheimer can't help but notice that uh, your hair is a little on the dark side. That it's a little curlier than I think it should be. I notice that you're not wearing that thing on your arm or the thing here on your lapel. Maybe I should go over to the Swazi person next door. If you're not going to wear the swastika... Maybe instead we can put a yellow star on you. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. This is not a covert means of manipulation. This is a very overt means of persecution. I either identify with them or I'm against them. And if I'm against them, then it doesn't matter what store I go to, it doesn't matter what farm I happen to own, it doesn't matter what legally I should, what protection I should have legally, I'm gone. Can't buy, can't sell, can't do anything. This is not an underground movement. This is very much on the surface, and he wants it to be on the surface. He wants to show to God Himself that he can rob God of glory. If I can make them look like the antichrist that I'm setting up, if I can make them wear this thing that they have been foretold generations back would cut them off from any hope of salvation, then I can tell God he's not perfect after all. Rob God of glory. popularized by patriotism and fanaticism. Again, we're not talking about patriotism to one nation. We're talking about identifying with the earth against heaven. Some of them can be pressured into being apathetic. I'm not really a Nazi. I just don't want to make a fuss. You've probably heard that in front of some of the World War II documentaries. Not everybody in Germany actually was a card-carrying member of the Nazi party. They just didn't want to be persecuted like the way that they saw the Slavs, the Jews, the uh, communists, and so forth being persecuted. It will be necessary for citizenship to get any protection under law a sign of oppression to those who resist. So, for our next session, please go ahead and read chapter 14. In chapter 14, we're going to see a familiar group make another appearance, the 144,000. I want you to think about these things as you're reading. Number one, where do they fit into this picture? We're coming out of the prophetic imagery. We're coming out of the uh, parables here. We're coming back into John's experiences while he's in the presence of God. So where do they fit into the vision? What is their purpose? Why are they there? What do you know from either history or from your time in Sunday school about Babylon? Its people, its place in the Bible. Will people, from this point in time, from the time of chapter 14 on, if they're on the earth, will they be able to find salvation? Will they be able to be redeemed? And as always, discuss with your groups, talk about it, let iron sharpen iron and journaling every day that you do these readings. Put down what you thought you already knew, what you didn't know, and what was challenging. Put down any questions. And I guarantee you that if you have those down and you keep that up, that you will be blessed for it. If you can read it and you can write it, then you got it. And all God's people said, Amen. Any questions on the material before we conclude? Anything from... Okay. If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for this time and we thank You um, for giving us a curiosity to learn more about the future of Your people. Lord, we know that the church will not endure your wrath. But we know that there are those who are our relatives, who are our friends, who are our neighbors, that if this were to happen tomorrow, they would be in the thick of it. Use these texts to compel us to your work to be bold in proclaiming your love, to let the people that we know who have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin, who have yet to be redeemed, who have yet to have that peace that only you can provide, help us to be the messengers of your hope to them before it is everlastingly too late, to do the works of kindness, to be the living examples of your grace. And to be bold in being able to declare that if they only believe, Christ is willing to save. So journey with us now as we continue forward. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share his word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.